Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. Would you guys and ladies stand with me as we open our Bibles to the book of Colossians? We're going to be reading verses nine verses, verses 15 through 23. For those of you who do not know me, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. I tell you what, I would love uh, to meet you afterwards if you'd like to meet me. If you don't, I understand. But if you'd like to meet me, I would love to meet you. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. This is the Word of God. And as we're getting into it, the first word in chapter 15 says, He, and that's speaking of Jesus. So anytime you see he or him in here, we're talking about Jesus. So this is the Word of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, let me say that again, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Look at this. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have the blessing of being able to come together and to gather together, we want to declare, we want to acknowledge that we, we need you. And sometimes we realize this more than others. Sometimes we understand our weakness and our brokenness. For those of us who are there this morning, I pray that you would come alongside of us, that you would help us to turn our eyes up and to see you. But sometimes we forget that we need you. Sometimes we feel strong, we feel self-sufficient. But the truth is, as this passage shows, you are upholding us. We need you. We need to see you more clearly. So we ask for light. I ask for your salvation to be upon us. I ask that you would help us to bow our knees afresh and that our tongues would confess this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is whether we confess it or not, but help us to confess it this morning that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. 
Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our teaching series that Pastor Terry kicked off last week, the, the series Colossians, with the subtitle, Jesus is Greater Than Anything. And as a reminder, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae to address certain cultural pressures that were pressing in on the church, that was tempting the church to either turn away from Jesus, from the true Jesus, or to add something to the true Jesus. That's why this letter was written, and all throughout this passage, Paul is writing to convince the church of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, that Jesus is greater than everything. That's where you say, okay, thank you. And nowhere in the book of Colossians is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ more clearly communicated than in the passage that I just read today. There's a lot of scholars who would think that this passage was a hymn of the first century church, that they would come together and sing this corporately in order to worship and teach the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. This is a passage that is meant to clearly reveal who the real Jesus is. And to me, I don't know if you caught this in verse 18. There's a word in verse 18 that's kind of interesting to me. It's the word preeminent. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you had to give a definition to me of what does preeminent mean? Many of us probably couldn't give the definition, so I'm going to give it real quick. Preeminent means to exceed others in quality or rank, having paramount dignity, importance, having first place. That's what it means to be preeminent. Now, I want to be real with you guys. Uh, Let's be real together. How many of you have ever used the word preeminent in an ordinary sentence throughout the day? Okay, we got, really? Okay, had one person raise their hand. Um, Guys, you want to impress that girl or your wife? Just say, hey, man, there's a lot of women in the world, but you're preeminent. Well, seriously, in our current culture, instead of saying that someone is preeminent, we refer to them as the goat. Okay, guys, don't tell a girl she's a goat. Okay, that's not... What does goat mean? Greatest of all time, right? Uh, The greatest of all time. And I want to just go through a couple of uh, greatest of all times. When you think of the greatest basketball player in time, who do you think of? LeBron, Michael, or Farnsworth? Come on, people. Patrick Ewing, okay. Let's go back to Dr. J, right? Okay. How about the top greatest minds of all time? How about Aristotle, Einstein, Holifield, or Davis? How about the greatest hip-hop artists of all time? Tupac, Tupac, Jay-Z, Parks, come on, or Big Zach in the back, come on. We're going to find out in this, in this church who is the greatest of all time, aren't we? I want us to see, though, that when, Jesus, when Paul is talking about that Jesus is preeminent, that he is the GOAT that he is supreme, sufficient, and preeminent. He's not saying that Jesus is the greatest in just one area of life. 
like these men may or may not be. He's saying that Jesus is the greatest, period. He is the greatest over creation, and he is the greatest outside of creation. He is not of creation. As we read, he is the creator. And maybe you're thinking, cool, okay, cool. You're the church, you're supposed to say that, we're supposed to say that as a church. So how is that supposed to affect, that truth right there, how is that supposed to affect our lives? Well, hopefully drastically. It should drastically affect our lives because as others before me have pointed out, in this passage, there are four fundamental philosophical questions that today's text answers. Four basic questions that all people in all times and in all places places have, are, and will continue to ask because it's questions that are deep within our soul. The first one is this. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all four of them up here at the front. If you have a weekly on the back, you can go ahead and fill them in, and then you can listen the rest of, and take notes during the rest of the sermon. Number one is, who am I? Who am I? Number two, why am I here? Those are two questions that you're going to ask over and over throughout your life. Number three, why is the world broken? That's the question of, of evil. And then number four, how can it be fixed? How can what is broken be fixed? Those are the four questions that I plan to show you in this passage how they are answered by the preeminence, easy for me to say, the preeminence of Christ. Okay, y'all with me? All right. Who am I? So that's the first question we're going to answer is who am I? This is a uh, there is a prevailing atheistic postmodern evolutionary view that teaches that there is no God. This isn't, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone in this room. We've all been in it our whole lives. Uh, it, therefore, if there is no God, that means that you are a clump of cells that by chance came together through godless, random, evolutionary processes. In other words, you are an arbitrary accident. That's what that worldview, if you really br- bring it down to, the, to its uh, conclusions, that's what it would say. But you know, at the core of our being, I don't care who you are, we all know that that's not true. We know that we were meant for more. That's what our movies are always showing is that there's something more that I was meant for. And listen, you know that because if you knew that I was at home teaching my children, if I said to my child, my, my daughter, you know, honey, you're nothing. You're just a clump of cells that randomly came together to form you. Honey, you are an accident. Now go out and make the best of it. Listen, if you knew I was teaching this to my kids and you did not call DSS on me, you'd be aiding and abetting. Why? Because that would be child abuse, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And yet, that's what our public schools and colleges and mainstream media teach us every day. They teach this to our children, to our young adults, without batting an eye. And then we wonder, why are we so visionless? Why is there so much confusion 
about our identities, about who we are. So how does this text answer that question? How does a Christian theistic worldview answer that question of who we are, who I am? Well, in order to begin to know who you are, you have to begin to know who Jesus is. So let's look at verse 15 in our text. It says, He, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that word image there, it refers to Jesus being the exact stamp or the imprint or icon of God. You might remember in Matthew 22, uh, verse 19, when Jesus' opponents were coming to him and trying to trap him by asking him, should they pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says to, to them, what does he say? He says, show me a coin. Show me a coin that you pay your taxes with. And so they brought him a, a denarius. And this is what Jesus said to him in verse 20. He said, he asked them, whose image is this on this coin? That word image that Jesus uses there is the exact same word that is in our passage today. It means that Jesus is the exact image, the exact imprint, the exact representation and manifestation of God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What does this teach us? It teaches us that God desires to have fellowship with us. He wants us to know him. Why? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I really, if I really think about it, I don't know why God is so passionate about us having a relationship with him. But he's clearly communicated this by sending Jesus to earth to take on flesh. Verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, it's important to understand what that means, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, do not let false teachers like Jehovah's Witnesses deceive you into thinking that the firstborn of all creation implies that Jesus was the first created being. That's what they will try to show you right here. He's the firstborn of all creation. But in context, in the first century church, they understood, in Jewish culture, they understood that firstborn is a title of rank. It's a title of preeminence. And so in the Jewish culture, the firstborn was given special authority, special honor, and special responsibilities of managing the father's inheritance. It's important to understand this. The firstborn sons were to be their father's representatives to the rest of the family. Jesus is the firstborn, God the Father's representative to us. Not only that, but he is creator. Verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. This is teaching that Jesus is creator God, and it's, it's celebrated and supported all throughout the New Testament. John 1, verse 3 says, All things, all things, everything, all things 
were created, were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. If anyone ever tries to trick you, um, scam you, deceive you by teaching that Jesus was the first created being, you need to bring them to this text right here. Because it clearly teaches that everything that was made was made by Jesus. And if it wasn't made by Jesus, it wasn't made. Jesus couldn't make himself any more than we can create ourselves. Jesus, this is teaching Jesus is creator God. And it's affirmed again in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, In these last days, God the Father has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. There again is that firstborn imagery through whom also he created the world. Jesus is creator God. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Genesis 1.1. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. What does the New Testament teach? Jesus created the heavens and the earth. So what can we conclude? Jesus is God, right? Then jump down to verse 26. It says, then, now we're going to get to the who I am question now. We have to see who Jesus is first. But then we jump down to verse 26 of Genesis 1. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is where we realize who we are when we begin to realize who Jesus is because we were created in the image of God. Of God. I love what Vody Bauckham says about this. He says to this question of who am I? Secular humanism says that I am a result of random processes. Christian theism says I am the crowning glory of the creation of God. I am no accident. I am no result of random processes. Whether I am tall and beautiful or whether I am small and not so handsome, whether my body functions perfectly or I am deformed severely, I am the crowning glory of the creation of God, and as a result, I have inherent dignity and inherent worth and inherent value. Amen? Why do we have value, inherent value, dignity, and worth? Because Jesus the supreme, sufficient, preeminent creator, God has declared that whether you are a baby whose life has just begun at conception or whether you've run your race in life, your tank's on empty and you're about to cross the finish line and breathe your last breath, or maybe you're somewhere in between, wherever you are in life, you have been fearfully and wonderfully created in the image of God Almighty, you are the crowning glory of the creation of God. That's who you, that's who I am, according to the scriptures. And you know, there's, there's times that I personally have to stop in life and, and really consider this. Um, there was a time that I didn't exist. This, 
I know I've talked to you, I think I've talked to you all about this before, but there was a time I didn't exist. There was a time that we didn't exist. There was a time when the sun was rising and setting, the moon was orbiting the earth, the earth was spinning on its axis, but long before I landed on this planet, and it will continue to do so if the Lord takes me to be with him before he returns. And before I began, I have to consider this, before I began to be formed in my mother's womb, before that happened, I was actually conceived in the mind of God. He imagined or envisioned me. I'm not exactly sure the right language for that, but he had specific thoughts about me and you. He made decisions about how I was going to be uniquely designed. He chose my parents. I did not choose them. He chose my gender. He chose my personality. He chose my strengths that I would have, that I could develop in life to glorify him. He also wisely determined what my weaknesses or limitations would be so that I would still have to be dependent on him and upon the body of Christ. God thought about that before he brought me or you into existence. And then he said, let there be James. And the world has never been the same, right? (laughs) I came into this world, how? As an image bearer of God. So did you. That's who you are. Don't let anyone bring you below that. Which leads us to our second philosophical question, which is, why am I here? Okay, you know you're here. I think, therefore, I am. You know you exist, but why? What's Another way to ask that is, what's my purpose? Some of us are asking that this morning. I still haven't figured that out. What is my purpose in life? Well, again, secular humanism teaches that there is no God, that you are a random cosmic accident, and that this is all there is. Therefore, if you have this worldview, if there is no God, if you really believe this, then the most logical thing that you can do is live for you with this mindset. Everything exists for you and your enjoyment and your consumption. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He says if if the resurrection didn't really happen, then eat, drink, and be merry. Ignore the image of God that's in everybody else because in your mind it doesn't exist, do what's best for you, because there, this is all there is, and tomorrow we die. Bodhi Bauckham also talks about this, and he says that when you live with this worldview and this kind of mindset of personal enjoyment and consumerism, when that's what your life is about, that's what your purpose is about, The only thing, you know, the only thing that really matters, if that's your mindset, is whether or not I'm stronger than you. That's all that matters. You know why? Because if you happen to possess what I need to have in order to make me happy, to give me enjoyment, then if I'm stronger than you, what do I do? I just take it, right? Now, if you study uh, human history, that's, that's all throughout human history. Hey, you got land I want, I'm stronger than you, I'm gonna take it. Sometimes it's even done in the name of God. Hey, I've got fields that need to be worked. I'm stronger than you. I'm taking away your freedom. If your life is getting in the way of me being able to live mine, 
then I'm taking it. Um, it it's, listen, and now I'm talking to the church here. I want you, church, I'm talking to us this right now. It's that kind of worldview that, that we can get parts of it. It can subtly make us kind of lukewarm. Instead of seeing our children as precious, eternal souls to be discipled and trained to know and to love Jesus, Sometimes our desire, desire for comfort, our desire for a career, our desire to have leisure can tempt us to long to be empty nesters. How do you know, James? I know. It's a temptation. We can see our children as I wish they would go ahead and get out of here so that I can get back to my life and to do what I want to do instead of seeing, no. This is what God has given you to invest your life in if he's given you children. It, it also causes us to uh, see the disabled and the elderly as unnecessary burdens on society who would be better off if they, maybe if they have a disorder, shouldn't even come into this world. Or better off if we help them if they're older. Help them end their lives prematurely through assisted suicide. And I know that what I'm talking about right here is so heavy. But it's really, it really is the world in which we live. And, you know, when I put it like that, I think all of us know that, that that's wrong thinking, isn't it? Um, we're here for more than just personal pleasures and consumptions. And the good news is that the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ teaches us something higher and better. That we exist not for ourselves, but for someone who is preeminent, who is greater. We exist for Jesus. Let's look at verse 16. For by him, all things were created. Jump down to all things were created through him and for him. They were created by him and for him. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Now, my family and I, we enjoy watching movies from time to time together. And I just want to stop here and make sure that I'm clear. Walking in the, uh, enjoying things is not wrong. That's not the point of what I was saying earlier. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy as we are setting our hope on him. And, you know, one of the things that I enjoy when we're watching movies is to consume a bowl or a large cup of coffee, uh, a coffee cup of ice cream. If you've ever been in my house and opened the freezer, I've seen, whoa, we love ice cream in my house, okay? We enjoy, we consume ice cream in our house to the glory of God. I've got two favorites, Chocolate Trinity, Publix. Trinity, it's Christian. <laughs> and brown, brownie moose tracks. And I form it. Into my cup, y'all, mm, I form it into my cup, the right proportions, get some whole milk. Come on, can I get an amen? 
You know, I know exactly how much to put in. Oh, mix that stuff up. Mm. I put it on the table or the counter there, put everything back. Why? For my enjoyment. I created that for me, okay? I didn't actually, we don't actually create things, honestly, though. We take what Jesus created and we use them. But why, did I, why do I do that? It's not for my wife. It's not for my kids. This is the one time that secular humanism is allowed with ice cream. I go, you can get your own or I will get you some. But they, I don't get theirs because they know how they want to create their enjoyment. Anyway, I'm way off here. You're, I'm, some of you are going to go away and go, so we are a bowl of ice cream in the hands of the Lord. Well, kind of. Uh, we are for, we were created by Jesus, for Jesus, for his enjoyment, and for us to enjoy him. Verse 17, let's keep going. It says, and he is before, that word before means to be above uh, or in front of all things, and in him all things hold together, okay? So Jesus is not the only the creator of all things. He didn't create things like a deist, Deist teaching just kind of went away and lets it unwind like a clock. He holds it together. He sustains all things. Now, this is echoed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when it says that Jesus upholds, now listen to this, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I, that ver, these two verses do something in my soul when I really stop and think about it. Uh, how should that truth that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power, how should that practically affect the way that we live our lives? Well, let me tell you what it should, should do. It should destroy this idea that Jesus is my co-pilot. Have you ever seen bumper stickers like that? I'm the pilot, Jesus is my co-pilot, and, or t-shirts or like that. Um, I've seen those. You know what a co-pilot is? Second in command. Um, sometimes we seek to, as believers, church, I'm talking to us again, we seek to put Jesus in a secondary position of authority in our lives. And I love what Tim Keller, when he was uh, still alive, he used to tell this uh, story about, well, not a story, but give this example. He said, if the distance between the sun and earth of 92 million miles was just a piece of paper, or the thickness of a piece of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. Our closest star would be 70 feet high worth of papers. This ceiling right here is 11 feet, okay? The diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high, and our galaxy is just a speck of dust compared to the entire universe. And if there is a person, listen, if there is a person that holds all things together by the word of his power, that is his, his pinky, as it were, he says this, is this the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? Do you come to one who holds all things together with conditions? Do you make him, try to make him your co-pilot? I, I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear that that's not who Jesus is. 
I love what H.B. Charles Jr. says. He says, why do you think it is that the world is a cosmos and not a chaos? Why do you think it is that the earth is close enough to the sun that we don't freeze, but far enough away that we don't burn? Why do you think it is that the sun keeps rising in the east and going down in the west? Why do you think it is that winter, spring, and summer, and fall keep passing in their course? That the flowers keep budding and blooming and fading and falling? One answer. Jesus is holding all things together. And what is true of the vast universe is true of your life. Whether we realize it or not, Jesus is sustaining us. He's given us that next breath, that next heartbeat. I, can, I can't sustain my own life. I can't control things that are going on around me. Last night, I found out I'm locked out of my Facebook account. That ain't funny. I can't, I mean, I've been hacked, okay? So anyway, I'm saying I can't control those things. You can laugh unless my money gets taken. Anyway, verse 18, it says that he is the head of the body, the church. I want you to think about that. This is a metaphor which describes our total dependence on Jesus. Think about this. A body without a head is what? Dead. It is. And anything with two heads is a monster, right? Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the supreme and sufficient head of his body, the church. It says he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That he might have first place in everything, including our lives. Why are we here? Why am I here? For Jesus, who sustains all things by the word of his power. And you might be thinking, which is a, really is a logical question, if Jesus, and he is, but if Jesus is sustaining all things by the word of his power, if he's good, if he's omniscient, if he could do anything, why does evil exist? That's where our third question is, why is the world broken? Have you ever thought, I know you've thought of that. This is not a new question. This is something that's asked throughout every single generation Everybody knows that there's something wrong with the world in which we live. There is brokenness all around us. And, you know, a couple of months ago, I stood right here and talked to uh, an individual who identifies as being an atheist. And uh, they told me that, man, I really enjoyed your service, except for that one part where you kept uh, preaching about God. And I was like, I hope you didn't enjoy any of our service then because it's supposed to be all about God. But she, she was saying, every time you guys talked about God or sung about God, something in me kind of cringed. Um, and I kept talking to her, and she, she got to the place to say what we're saying here is that the reason is, is because if your God is so 
uh, loving and omnipotent, that, that's all powerful. If he could stop anything, if he could eradicate anything, why doesn't he eradicate evil? Why does he allow it to exist? And then she went on to, to cite uh, the Holocaust. She asked, you know, why did God allow over 6 million Jews, which was about two-thirds of the, the European population back then, why did he allow that to happen? Why did he, did he allow them to be massacred? And I looked at her, and I said, honestly, I don't know. I really don't know why God allowed that. But I know, and I've said this to you guys before, but I know it's not because he didn't care. I know he cared because he sent his son to die in our place. He, he sent his son to sacrifice his son. So I don't know why God allowed that. I know he's wiser than me. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He knows what he's doing. I don't know why he allowed that, but I know it's not because he didn't care. And you know, part of the answer as to why the world is broken, part of the answer is found in verse 21 of our passage today. Verse 21, you only have to go into two words, and you. And you. Why is the world broken? Part of the reason that it's broken is because of you and because of me. In other words, because of sin that dwells within. And, you know, we all have the tendency, myself included, to think that, you know, all the problems of the world are kind of like out there. They're out there. I'm always wanting to blame someone else for the problems in my life. I want to blame my circumstances. I want to blame my parents. I want to blame my coach, my church, society, just something out there. But verse 21 shows, well, you're part of the problem. Okay, let's keep reading. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. In other words, when you thought about God, it made you cringe inside. There was a time that God just, you were his enemy. This is what this is teaching, doing evil deeds. In other words, we loved sin. And so Jesus is teaching that you and I are part of the problem of brokenness. Yes, yes, evil does exist around us. Yes, evil things happen to us that we didn't bring upon ourselves. They, they happen to our loved ones. But it's not just out there. This passage is teaching that it's in here. And, and honestly, I'm somewhat, personally, I'm somewhat aware of, of this truth in my own life, um, that I've contributed to the brokenness, not just in my own life. I've made some bad decisions for myself, but I've done some things that have brought brokenness into other people's lives. Uh, when I look back over my life as a teenager, when I look at myself as a young adult, when I look at it as myself as a young married, as a young parent, as a friend, when I consider my sins of commission, things that I shouldn't have done, but not only that, when I consider my sins of omission, you know those good things that you should have done that you didn't do, that you regret? 
when I consider those things that I should have done. And I realize that he who created all things for himself, he who sustains all things by the word of his power, when I consider him and yet how I have strayed even after coming to him through Jesus, it leaves me in awe that God, not that he hasn't eradicated sins, evil out there, it leaves me in awe that he hasn't eradicated me, honestly. But rather, it reveals how patient and kind and how merciful God is. And so if God were to totally stamp out evil, which he is going to do, there is going to be a day when he returns. But if he were to do it now, if he had done it 20 years ago, I wouldn't be here today. And neither would you. This is teaching we're part of the problem because of indwelling sin. And the good news is that God doesn't just leave us there and say, you're a part of the problem. He says, I've got a fix for your problem. And that's found in verse 19. How can it be fixed? How can this world be fixed? For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All creation is going to be renewed in Christ, including us. And look at this, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. How can this world be fixed, really fixed? Well, as Jesus was heading to the cross to die for the world, what does he say? He says this to his disciples in John, uh, I think it's chapter 17, 18. He says, in this world, you will have troubles. You will have tribulations. You'll have sorrows within you and around you, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Then what did he do? He went to the cross and he died. And what does he do at the very end after he bled and died? Before he died, he said, it is what? Finished. I have fixed the problem, which was sin within us that separated us from God. And listen, if you're seeking for a fix that's going to fix the things around you, I want to encourage you, don't treat the symptom. Don't treat the symptom. Go to the cause of your brokenness, and that is sin within us. And listen, because listen, once Jesus forgives you of your sins and cleanses you, you realize what you were created for. All the questions that we were asking in this passage are answered. Who you are, why you were created, what is the problem in this world, what is the fix? It is Jesus his death on the cross. And that's, that's just the beginning. It's to bring us into fellowship. It's to bring us into a relationship. That's what we were created for. So that no matter what's going on around us, 
No matter what's going on, if we truly are embracing what Christ did for us, his love is filling us and we are filled with the knowledge of God, the person of God, his Holy Spirit, and empowered to live lives, even in the midst of brokenness. And so this morning, I just want to close by asking you, what is your fix? If you really had to boil it down to the truth, what truly is your fix. Now, I'm talking to maybe you've never come to Jesus. This morning, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus. I want to encourage you to lay down at his feet or surrender to him, believing what he's done for you. It may be that to the church, he was your fix, Jesus was your fix, but you've kind of shipped, you've kind of drifted. He's not your first love. Truth is, you haven't been abiding in him. You've been around the things of God, but you've not been abiding in Christ. Is he your fix? Or is, have you found a symptom that has become your life to end world hunger, to stamp out racism or uh, mental health or eradicate uh, sex trafficking and end poverty? All of these things, listen, we should be involved in, but they should not be our fix. We should be bringing Jesus into these things as the fix of these things. So that's what I want to just ask you this morning. What is your fix this morning? Because Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation, the creator who holds all things together by the word of his power, the one who is head of his church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the one who brought us peace with God through the blood of his cross, the supreme, the, the sufficient, the preeminent one, Jesus says, I am the answer to who you are, why you're here, and how that which is broken must and can be fixed. Come to me, believe in me, abide in me, find rest in me, learn from me, surrender your life to me, and I will grant you eternal life and purpose. Amen.